What we want to do at Collective Church, what we've, what we've set out to do over the past few weeks, is uh, we've begun this study in the Gospel of Mark, like, like uh, Pastor Isaac said, kind of a biography of sorts, where Mark puts together this story of looking over these eyewitness accounts of who Jesus Christ was, what he did, what he was all about, what it means to follow him, and over kind of starting off now and into 2020, we're going to be looking at what does it mean for Jesus to be who he is as he's been revealed through the stories of who he is, and not some of the cultural things that we tack on to what it means to follow Jesus. And so we've kind of kicked off doing this, but by doing that, we've uh, kicked off doing it by looking at the first verse of Mark's gospel. Um, you'll see it on the slide behind me where Mark begins his story of Jesus with this. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark opens with his little story of Jesus with just before he goes anywhere, he tells you what he's going to tell you. In my story, my gospel, I'm going to show you Jesus and his good news, how he is the Christ and how he is the Son of God. And then he moves into Jesus' life, really picking up in his adulthood in Mark 1.1. But what we've been doing over the past few weeks is actually stopping in this first verse and looking at other passages, other texts that deal with what it means for Jesus to be Jesus. What would that name have meant for Jesus' friends and his neighbors and those people that first heard the gospel proclaimed to him? This week, we're going to be looking at Christ. What does it mean that Jesus is Christ? What would that title or that name, whatever this is, meant for those original people that heard this proclamation of Jesus? And next week, when we return, we'll be looking at the Son of God. And so we're looking at these three things. What does it mean for Jesus to be Christ? And what we're doing is we're actually going to be doing this by continuing where Isaac left off in actually Matthew's gospel. So we're jumping from Matthew to Mark. Everybody has been talking to me. They're like, I thought we're doing the Gospel of Mark. And now we're in Matthew this week. We're getting there. But first we're doing some of the prequel stuff in the, the, the story of his birth. So Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read just these 12 verses. Um, and it will be on the slides behind me if you don't have a Bible. But let's, let's read this, and then I'll pray for us, and then I'll kind of set up what this is telling us about what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. So Matthew 2, verse 1. <clears throat> Now, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so let's pray. 
Well, Father, we just acknowledge that uh, in some ways the Christmas story is uh, one of the parts of, the, of, of Jesus's life that, that, that often we feel like we most know and we've heard over and over again. Um, and yet at the same time, it, it seems to be the one that we miss out on the most, almost because of all of the kind of Christmas fixings that are placed around it. Um, like the nativity, uh, my prayer is today not that we would just kind of throw the whole thing out, but we might put uh, the pieces in place where they belong and might see your son at the center uh, for who he truly is um, and not um, what, we, what we think he is. Um, I pray that we would not, um, God, make him into something that he wasn't, and we also wouldn't make him into our own image and make him something that appeals to us, but that we would see Jesus for who he is, that we would question what it means for Jesus to be who he claims to be. Help us to receive him as such. In your name we pray, amen. So what we have in these 12 verses of Matthew's gospel is a seemingly simple story where Matthew kind of retells the story, the visit of the wise men to come and see Jesus. And so he's telling this story about the birth and around the birth of Jesus and the events around it. But at the same time, Matthew is, is interjecting and interweaving a understanding of who Jesus is and what it means for him to be the Christ in particular. And so he sets this up, but at the same time, he also reveals uh, three examples of how we respond to who Jesus is. And so first off, just to summarize, what he says in this is that Jesus, for him to be the Christ, is, well, you could just summarize it this way. This is the take home. When we say Christ, Christ is or Christ means king. Whatever you might have heard, whatever you might think, for Jesus' original audience, for Mark when he writes this, to say Jesus is Christ or Christ Jesus, it is to say King Jesus. It is to say that Jesus is king. And this is what he's going to show us in these first, specifically six verses of chapter two of Matthew. But then Matthew is also going to interweave and place not only a theology or a history of who Jesus is, but also get really practical in giving you examples of what does it mean to receive Jesus for his kingship? What does it mean to receive Jesus in this way? And so we'll get to that. First, let's look, though, at what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. So if you look back over those first six verses of chapter 2, what we find is this Venn diagram that Matthew kind of puts together of what it means for Jesus to be who he is. In verse uh, where would we go? Verse two, where they ask for, where has he been born, the king of the Jews? They ask Herod, where's the king of the Jews? And then Herod asks, where's the Christ? Do you see it, it weaves over? Matthew asks, where's the, or Matthew, Herod asks, where's the Christ to the chief priests and the, um, and the scribes? And they respond with, oh, the ruler that's to come is over here. And that ruler is also going to be the shepherd. There's this Venn diagram of all these different circles of king of the Jews, of Christ, of ruler, of shepherd that begin to kind of overlap and give us a sense of what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. It's for him to be the king of the Jews, the culmination and center of Israel's story. It's for him to be the Christ, the word is the, the Greek word that comes out of the Hebrew word for the anointed one, the Messiah, the anointed king who would come and bring God's people back from exile, from the place that they were always meant to be, whether that was the promised land in picture or the picture of the promised land, that all of us, the Garden of Eden, where there has been some ideal that has been lost because of the human condition. And Jesus has come to bring humanity back to it. And the way that they do this for the scribes and the Pharisees, what Matthew does in quoting is he, he winks at us by quoting this, this prophetic line where it said that, so it is written by the prophet. It's Matthew winking at you. Hey, you wanna know more? 
go back to, and he quotes from Micah chapter 5. And so you'll see on the slide the larger context of what Matthew and these chief priests and scribes are quoting from. In uh, Micah chapter 5, he's looking forward to the Christ that would come, and he writes, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clams of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So these scribes and Pharisees, they pull towards just the, you know, oh, he's from Bethlehem. Matthew wants us to go back and pull together what it means for him to be the Christ by looking at this, this prophecy of what was going to happen. When you, when you look over this, you begin to see Jesus start coming forth. Just asking questions. Well, so where? Where is the Christ coming forth? Where does he come from? Well, Micah says somehow he both is coming forth from Bethlehem Ephrathah and also coming forth from ancient days. Do you see that there? The coming forth language he applies to both Bethlehem and ancient days. There is already in the beginning of the gospel this imagery of this Jesus Christ figure who would somehow both be earthly, earthly humility coming from Bethlehem and eternal divinity in him being from ancient days. Do you see that? That even from the beginning, even from the prophecy, that, that Jesus' divinity and worshiping him as such is not something that we tacked on to Christianity a couple hundred years later. From the beginning, this was what was prophesied about him. So he comes from both Bethlehem and ancient days. When is he coming? Micah tells us after the pains of Israel's waiting for their kings that he personifies or metaphors in this, these labor pains, which Matthew picks up and goes, and he brings it all to a head specifically in Mary's actual labor pains. See, this whole prophecy is coming together in the story of Jesus. So where is he coming? When is he coming? And why is he coming? He says that this king is coming to return uh, Israel from exile back to the promised land, that he wants to return humanity from their exile in the world back into the Garden of Eden. Again, this, this idealized picture of what it means to be human, where there's flourishing in the absence of evil and death and chaos. He has come to bring his people back to that. He does this like a shepherd who leads them and represents God. This is what Micah means by saying that he comes in the majesty of the name of the Lord and in the strength of the Lord. It is a, whoever this shepherd king is, he represents God. And he represents God by being their peace. The Hebrew word there is their shalom. That he comes to restore to wholeness that which is broken. See, this whole picture of what Matthew does in quoting from Micah is not just telling us where Jesus is going to be born, but actually who Jesus is and what he's come to do with this world. And so this is what we're talking about. When we say the word Christ, we are saying this story, this Micah 5 and the rest of the Old Testament, this is what Israel was waiting for. This is what Mark and Matthew are picking up on when they say the word Jesus. When they say the word Christ, they're saying king. This anointed and awaited king who would restore the world back to what it was meant to be before it fell into chaos. And we need to hear this because we need to ensure that like the nativity, we make the main thing the main thing when it comes to Christmas. You know, for some of us, we grow up thinking that Christ is Jesus' last name. Where we just kind of think, you know, where Jesus, you know, grows up going to the synagogue and they're doing roll call. And, they're, you know, Christ Jesus here is like what comes off of Jesus' mind, or Mr. Christ. Like these, these sorts of things, is, is what, this isn't the understanding of what's going on. 
other things that, that exist almost like a glowing Jesus where we think that what Jesus Christ means is that, well, Jesus being the Christ means that that's proof that God exists. Or Jesus being the Christ is my ticket to heaven or it's my, my get out of hell free card or it's my forgiveness of sins or Christ means that, that God is love or God is grace or whatever this might be or that Christ is actually more of a verb than a noun and it's something that Jesus exemplifies but it is the sort of transcendent life that each of us are called and available to as human beings, regardless of spiritual or religious holdups. See, each of these things are like Santa in the manger. They can just be wise men, that they are there, but not in the right order. They're characters, they're exaggerations. When we bring strange creations of cultural presuppositions on what it means for Jesus to be Christ, we miss the order of things. And so there is forgiveness, there is grace, there is love, there is everything that you have wanted and more in Jesus the King, absolutely. But we need to ensure that first and foremost, that when we think about Christmas, when we think about the word Christ, what we understand this to be is the announcement that in the midst of this broken and chaotic and dark world, God is now King in a new and profound and transforming way through his Christ, Jesus. This is what Christmas means. There's a new king in town, and he's come to renew a world that's gone, gone into chaos. And so that's what Matthew sets up for us by quoting from, Matthew, um, from Micah chapter 5. But then surrounding that quotation from Micah 5, you see there's these three different characters, these three examples of what it means for us to receive Jesus as the king that he claims to be. And by doing that, he doesn't just give us history. He's asking you to read this with your eyes and your life and your heart and to ask, how, where am I in this story? Who, who am I? How am I engaging with Jesus as Christ? And so the first one that we see, the first example is that of Herod. So if you look back over the passage, what we see is that Herod, in this um, proclamation of, of that Jesus you know, has come to town, we see that he's troubled or disturbed in verse 3. He's inquiring and he's asking questions in verse 4 and verse 7. He does this weird little secret summons of the wise men where he's like calling the guys over to figure out what's going on. I mean, there's even a humor in this where you picture, it lays it out for us, that Herod is the king of the Jews. He's sitting on his throne, and the wise men walk in to the, to the room, and they kind of go, hey, where's the king here? Me. And they go, no, 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 not you, the real one. Herod is, is provoked and brings out that as we see, if you continue reading beyond what we did in verses 13 and specifically in 16, that he becomes furious, it says, when he gets to see who Jesus actually is and how people are responding to him. And he sends and he kills all the male children in Bethlehem under the age of two. So even this, this deceiving, this language we read of him saying, oh, tell me where he is so that I might worship him, there's, there's hidden underneath this a deception in which Herod's response to Jesus as king is one of anger. The message that Jesus is king means that Herod is not, and Herod has a throne to keep. And, and here's the question that Matthew is asking us in the midst of telling us this story, is what, would it, what does it mean for us to be standing in Herod's shoes here? Because the reality is, as, as cutesy as it might sound, we all have a little Herod in our hearts. We all have this Herodian bent in which when we see anyone come and make a claim for our throne, our response is with anger. And right now you might be saying, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I'm not killing toddlers in my, like, you know, weekend time or whatever. That I'm actually a pretty good person. But the thing is, is that Matthew knows this. And that's why 
Herod is, is also not all evil. I mean, the first 24 years of his rule as king, he established peace in the land. He brought jobs for the working class. He made the temple more magnificent than it had ever been before. Herod was a pretty good guy. But it was specifically when anyone made a claim for his throne, for his crown, that his true colors began to come out in a new way. Those last nine years of his rule were marked by political intrigue, family disputes, and even executions of family members, clashes with Rome, and war. He would go on to execute three of his sons and his own, one of his wives. There was a common saying at the time about Herod where people would say that it would be better to be one of Herod's pigs than one of his sons. Because of this evil that these, these sons that were in line to take the throne, he couldn't bear the idea of his mastery over his domain being taken. And so he responded doing things that he probably never thought possible. To be human is to be plagued with the reality that we are all capable of the same levels of goodness, of bringing peace and making things awesome and great, and at the same time, great evil. And that evil shows its teeth whenever our throne, our self-mastery is challenged. Back in the 60s, the Presbyterian Church wrote a confession of faith where they define sin as this. You'll see it on the slide behind me. In sin, men claim mastery over their own lives. They turn against God and their fellow men and become exploiters and despoilers of the world. They lose their humanity in futile striving and left in rebellion, despair, and isolation. The Presbyterian Confession would go on to list these sorts of sin, the despoiling of creation. When humans lose their humanity and become beasts, they would list things like racial discrimination, things like international conflict, enslaving poverty, and what they termed as sexual anarchy. As examples, what happens when we claim mastery over ourselves and we become beasts in the process. You can even think to, I mean, what in the 60s they weren't paying attention to, but even uh, with climate and ecology and the way that we're treating our planet is mastery over and saying, I don't really care. This is what I want for myself. And so every great evil, whether it's Herod's uh, murder of infants, genocide, racism, sexism, slavery, abuse, these are all just the greatest and strongest evidences of, like I said, the Herodian and human propensity to fight and claim and take what I deem as mine that I am king. And you might say that genocide and racism, has anybody ever spoken ill of you? Watch what your heart does in that moment. Has anyone ever taken something when there's a promotion on the line and you think it's yours to have and they get it instead of you? There's the teeth that, that, that reside within you, that anger that happens when anyone takes what you have claimed as yours. It shows itself. We all have this propensity. And when Jesus shows up and the gospel begins to make a proclamation about Jesus who is king and what it means to submit under his rule, to follow him, and that any claim would be made about my money, about my sexuality, about my life and my words and my thoughts, that is when the Herodian posture comes out and we begin to fight. And the thing is, is well, I'll just quote T.S. Eliot, a poet. In his opening of the cocktail party, he writes, I think it's on the slide, uh, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them, or they do not see it, or they justify it, because they, absor they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. This is the question that's set before each and every one of us. Is, is, not, is this desire of self-importance, this desire of self-mastery, and in the process becoming like beasts, where we become less than human, 
And so Matthew's question is not simply whether or not you are Herod in this story, but how are you Herod in this story? In what ways are you claiming mastery over your lives? In what ways is it leading to you becoming less than human? The question is, how is it going for you? When you claim your money is your own and no one has any voice on how that goes, your body, your relationships, your sexuality, your, your time, your, whatever it might be for you that you say, this is mine and no one gets to speak in on this. How is that going for you? Is it leading you to be more human or less human? And could it potentially, possibly, just maybe be that you aren't meant to be the king over your life? The first example that we see in Herod is a response to Jesus' kingship with anger. The second that we see is that in the scribes and the chief priests. Now, they show up just briefly here in verse 4. And, and the thing is, is, when you think about it, though, is they don't show up anywhere else in the rest of the story. The chief priests and the scribes, these are the, the lead pastors and the Bible scholars. And they're, they, they show up for one verse, and their silence is a screaming, deafening poof that comes out. When you think about the nativity scene, when you think about who would have been there in line to worship and celebrate Jesus, who would you think would have been the first in line? Random shepherds? Pagan wise men? No, it'd be the chief priests and the, it'd, be the, it'd be the lead pastors. It would be the most religious and moral of the day and they are nowhere to be found. The second response of what we see in the scribes and the priests is one of apathy. This lack of desire, this lack of interest, this lack of priority where they know exactly where he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It's a, it's a six mile, two to three hour walk. They know exactly where he's gonna be born and yet none of them raise a sandal to go and greet him. Those that we assume to be the first in line to be rolling out the red carpet with gifts and feasts and worship are the ones that don't show up at all. They're nowhere to be found. To quote Band-Aid's repeated thing where they pull together Bono and Tom York and everybody, do they know it's Christmas time at all? They seem to be completely out of it. Now, why? I think Matthew doesn't give a reason why they don't go. And I think that's to provoke those of us that are reading this text to go, why wouldn't I go? If I had all the information about where Jesus was and where I could find him, why would I not lift a sandal? Why would I be comfortable to sit at home? A few options come out. One, they might just be comfortable with Herod as their king. There's a great danger in political allegiances that can keep us from seeing Jesus. You can chew on that over the next week. Others of us are not so much comfortable with the political systems and the structures that we have, and we just want to sit with those. Others of us are so distracted with life and religion that they know the answer, but we've got sermons to preach. We've got sacrifices to, to sacrifice. We've got things to do. And so, yeah, that's great that he's there, but we really got, we need to stay in Jerusalem. We've got more important things to do. Others of them, it might have just been such a self-focused religion that for them, uh, Herod's question was more like a Bible trivia game, which they were like, boop, boop, you know, Bethlehem, and they, they got to go, as opposed to actually doing anything with that information. The dangerous warning for most of us here that claim to be followers of Jesus is that we might respond, we might even know where we can find Jesus and yet be ap apathetic to even going and finding him. It's a dangerous warning that it's possible to be able to quote Bible verses about Jesus and never see him for yourself. It is possible to keep Jesus at an arm's length knowing about him but never allowing him to be king. It is possible to be so distracted in celebrating Christmas that we never actually celebrate Christmas. 
And see, the great danger of apathy is not the apathy in itself, but what the story of the scribes and the chief priests reveal is that apathy hardens over time. And it hardens into outright opposition and anger where they find themselves in just a few decades in Herod's shoes, not just trying to execute Jesus, but actually doing it in his crucifixion. Where they turn over time into this frenzied lust for blood and crucify him. It's a warning that you and I, specifically those of us that would be here claiming to be Christians, have to receive. I've seen this in my own life. With, with friends, with mentors, with pastors, and we've seen it. We can Google search and find pastor after pastor that, that like these chief priests and scribes that were claiming some religious and moral identity but over years of apathy hardened themselves to Jesus' actual kingship and ruling over their lives and ended up becoming the very thing that they never thought they were possible to be. And so Apathy shows itself as this, this dangerous way because apathy over time is simply the beginnings of a self-mastery claim. Before we ever get outright opposed, we're just kind of okay to do what I want to do. And the problem is that apathy over time leads to anger and anger leads to evil and evil is what's heaping chaos and death on ourselves and on our world. And so even in this two, these two little sets, what's the problem with our world? It's angry people and apathetic people that this is what's going on within our world and why it seems like chaos is happening left and right is we have people that are okay to just kind of sit on their hands while others of us are, are claiming after our self-mastery. And so the third example is the only hope for our world, specifically for us in response to this king. The final response is that of the wise men. And so first off, who, what, what are wise men? We don't really have any wise guys uh, anymore. And so the wise men, in the, in the Greek that, that Matthew's writing in, it's, it's this word magi, which we, we don't use that anymore. So think magician, but not like, you know, co- you know magic for, for humans or whatever on Netflix. Um, that these lean more towards like pagan, pagan astrologers. So these are, at the same time, astronomy and astrology back in this day were unified as one. So you didn't have like the scientists and then, you know, like the horoscope people. Back in the day, those were kind of the same thing. And so what these people were doing is they were consulting the stars and putting together charts and maps and studying things and doing good science and then applying it to a revelation of how the world works and who you are and your place in this world and what's happening. And so something happens where as they're looking up, they see a star that leads them to go all the way to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem to go find Jesus. And so what's going on with the star? This is where science, I found this this week and I had to do a lap. It's around the room, it's so good. This is where science and um, archeology span are really helpful. Some point to the star being like Halley's Comet. This is where most historians um, are today and this is so good. It's a little long, but it's so good. So this is Michael Green. Is it up there? Okay, cool. This is so good. Uh, The most probable suggestion about the star that we see in the Wiseman story uh, is the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in the area of the sky known as Pisces. This happened three years in 7 BC. It was seen on May 29th, October 3rd, and December 4th of that year. A cuneiform inscription from the observatory of, of Sippar in Babylonia gives us this fascinating information. So these are astrologers and astronomers that aren't Christians, pagans, that we have historical records of a star of, that looked like a star, but it was actually Jupiter, Jupiter and Saturn um, kind of laying on top of each other from our perspective and looking like one big star. So Babylonian astronomers and astrologers note this for us. Where am I? 
Oh my goodness. Okay, if this is in fact what arrested the attention of these stargazing magi, it's not difficult to see how they would have interpreted it. Pisces was reckoned by astronomers at that time to mark the end of the sun's old course and the beginning of the new. Something happening in Pisces, it was a shift in old to new. Jupiter was the royal planet, and Saturn had long been the symbol of Israel. So Jupiter and Saturn in Pisces, this conjunction of planets, giving the impression of one very bright star, would have meant to the competent astronomer that a new age was beginning in which the kingship and royalty and sovereignty of the world would shift to Judea. Jerusalem was the capital of Judea, and it is natural that the Magi should have gone there first uh, back in May. They would have set out after the conjunction of the first of the planets, and the third would have occurred why they were in Bethlehem. It seemed almost to be overhead and indicated to them that the end of their search was at hand. So this is this, I mean, awesome historical stuff that, I mean, it's not in Matthew, so take this with some kind of grain of sand, but this is at least... The fact that there's three of these happening around the time of Jesus' birth, and we had multiple records of Halley's Comets and all these different things that were happening in the stars, that there seems to be something. I think this is the best case scenario. of Why would pagan astrologers who don't care about Judea make the multiple-month trip to go see him? All the way from Persia to Bethlehem. It seems as though for some reason they thought the old is out, the new is in, and it's going to be a king from Judea, from Israel. And this is an incredible story of how God continues to work with you and me today in bringing people to himself. He doesn't just drop a Bible on our front porch. You know, we wake up and we're like, okay, oh, follow Jesus. Okay, that's what I'll do. He meets us in the little ways that we might be searching. And he brings us to, what, well, where, where do the wise men go? They, they get brought to the Bible, right? So they look out, they go, we're stars. We're looking for revelation about how the world works and our place in it. Okay, there we go, Judea. We're going to go to Judea, and they make the trip. They get there. They start asking questions, and the questions lead them to the Bible. They start asking questions of the Bible, and the Bible leads them to Jesus. And so this is what's so awesome is even in this little story, we have this example of how God works in you and me. And the way that he brings people to himself is first engaging with our lives. It might not be stars, but it might be friends. It might be a meal. It might be something happening within our lives that cause us to ask the questions of why am I here and what hope is there in this world? And it leads us to the Bible and that leads us to Jesus. That same pattern is happening here. And when these magi are brought from creation into the scripture and then to Jesus, it leads and shows itself in the third example, which is that of adoration. I mean, how much more adoration could he put it other than writing, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. <laughs> it's like Matthew, he's apparently an incredible author, but he's just like, sometimes he's got lazy. He's like, super happy, very happy, is what he basically <laughs> writes. So they rejoice exceedingly because they found what they were looking for. And so they worship Jesus is what it says. They fall on their faces. Think about the incredible scandal of these like big, to do, big name Persian scholars and astronomers, astrologers who walk in and there's a baby in a manger and they're on their faces worshiping him. This posture of lying down on one's face is an expression of complete allegiance and submission to a higher and, and specifically divine figure. Once again, note, the worship of Jesus as divine is not something that Christians created hundreds of years later, but from the very beginning, before he even did anything other than pooping and breastfeeding, we were worshiping him. And what do they do? Out of this posture of worship and allegiance to him, they are generous. They give gifts. 
pulling from prophecies of Psalm 72 and Isaiah 60 with the nations bringing their gifts to honor God's royal son. But even more than that, this generosity is those who see the gift of Jesus from God, that God's king has been given to a humanity that did not deserve it. We respond with generosity to that king and to his kingdom. The original heart of the gifts that we give on Christmas that you're either you know, still shopping for or hopefully done with is the original heart was that was maybe little gifts for kids that would lead to conversations around Jesus as the gift and specifically radical generosity. You see, the original St. Nick, St. Nicholas, um, it wasn't iPads being thrown down chimneys. It started with him, one of the original stories around St. Nick was um, three uh, women that uh, they, their family had fallen into poverty. And if they could not pay the dowry, which would be for them to go get married, they would have to sell themselves into prostitution. And the story, the tradition is that St. Nick, um, his parents were really, really rich. And so what he did with all the money is he would go around and bless people. And the original story is that one night he threw in the money, three portions of what would, what would be the cost for them to get married, the dowry through the window. Radical generosity of caring for those that are in need, that comes out of seeing that Jesus is the gift that we deeply needed and could not pay for ourselves. And so what's so crazy, I mean, you could just go on this generosity, this gift-giving thing forever, that, that the adoration the wise men display is one of generosity, that's giving not just to God and to his king and to his kingdom, but also to what is about to be um, political refugees that are going to be running away to Egypt and caring for them. There's so much here to be chewing on of what, what it means to adore Jesus. But finally, the wise men, their example of adoration and gift giving, it all leads to, as it says, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I don't care. Look with me in verse 12 at the very end, is that they were warned not to return to Herod and they went home in another way. I, there is something about this that when these men fell on their faces and worshiped the Messiah, the Christ that had been given to them, when they got up and went to return home, they did not go the same way. They did not go back to Herod. They did not go back to the they There was something that had changed within them and transformed them. And so what the wise men see is this example of an adoration that is showing itself in worship and generosity that leads to a transformation of going home in a different way. And this is what Christmas is the offering for each of us, is to receive Jesus as our king and to, to, to worship him for who he is, to celebrate and receive him as king, to worship him and, and, and be generous to his kingdom. And these wise men were transformed. And this adoration was showing itself in generosity. And so as we end, let's just look at these, these three gifts. Let's have some fun because sometimes it's like, what is up with frankincense and myrrh and gold? What's going on? Well, in these three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, these treasures, um, on, on one hand, this is a common practice that you would do when you would greet a king. You wouldn't come empty-handed. And just kind of like, you know, hey, good to see you, glad we're here. You would come with some kind of gift, an acknowledgement of his royalty, an acknowledgement of who he is. And so on one hand, that's what's going on here. There's an acknowledgement that they are here to greet a king. But beyond just being a royal gift, church history, uh, people have been noting there's some powerful symbols at work behind these gifts. I mean, let's just walk through them. Gold. When we think of gold, what, what immediately comes to mind is, is this, it's royalty, the immediate thing that comes to mind is, you know, crowns and scepters and thrones. Gold is this symbol of royalty. Once again, this gift being some sort of symbol of Jesus's royalty, that for him to be Christ means that Christ is king. Next is frankincense or, or just another sort of incense. 
And throughout the Old Testament, frankincense and incense was burned in the temple, and it was specifically a symbol of God's presence. There was this little thing that they said you could smell the incense in Jerusalem from the town of Jericho. That, that, that incense for Israel, as they burned it in the temple, was a, a you know, olfactory symbol of God's presence with them. And what we have here in this gift is that now we have more than just a symbol. We have the reality of God's presence with us, not just in symbol through incense, but in reality in Jesus. And then finally, myrrh. Myrrh, what in the world? Myrrh is this, um, it's a bitter herb. Sometimes it's used in perfume and medicine. But one of the primary uses for it in history, and specifically in the rest of the Gospels, when they mention myrrh outside of the gift here, is that it was used for the preparation of a dead body for burial which is kind of a weird gift for a baby. So I think they were thinking more of like the perfume probably side of things, like the, the medicine than preparing it. But even still, it's interesting. You see that what's going on here. And where do we see Mer show up? Well, Jesus' death on the cross. He's offered a sponge that's been dipped in wine that had been mixed with myrrh. And at Jesus' death, Nicodemus, Nicodemus, one of his followers, he came with myrrh and aloe to prepare his body for burial. And you and I, we began talking about the nostalgia, the, the memories that come with smell. And you can imagine Mary standing over her, her, her now dead son, Jesus, and Nicodemus is beginning to prepare his body. And she is smelling the same scent that she smelled like 33 years earlier when these wise men came to town and were opening up a gift of myrrh. You have myrrh showing up at the beginning and the end of Jesus' life. There's something profound at work here. Even at Jesus' birth, there are pointers to how Jesus as king would inaugurate the kingdom of God's presence. Through his cross, Jesus died the death that our claim of mastery over it takes. He was treated like the beast that our sin turns us into. Jesus' death on the cross was that, was that him dying so that we might finally find and receive the peace that our souls crave. Jesus' death extinguishes our anger by showing us a king that we can trust. And his death awakens us from apathy as we see our deep need for this sort of a king. Where we, we can't just stick around in Jerusalem anymore. But Jesus' birth with Christmas and his death, we remember in Good Friday, are not good news without Easter, without his resurrection. Because Jesus' resurrection, his victory over death, that is where Christ's kingship, his kingdom becomes realized in a, in a dynamic way. Where in his resurrection, we have these, all of these pictures and symbols coming together in actuality. Where the king is now reigned above all things. Where the king's presence is now recognized through the giving of his spirit to his people. That we now have his presence, not just in him bodily, but in each and every single one of us. And so the invitation of Christmas is for you and I to join the wise men, to join in this adoration and worship of our king and to go home another way, to be transformed by this story into the people of God under God's kingdom and under God's king, Jesus. This is the invitation. And so let's pray.